Welcome to the Nursing Standard Podcast. I'm Richard Hatchett, Senior Nurse Editor at RCNI and a registered nurse. And today we're talking to Matthew Brown, who's a litigation nurse at a firm of solicitors in Manchester. And we're exploring what a litigation nurse is and also what as nurses we can learn from the work that Matthew does with with patients and service users. So, Matt, welcome to the Nursing Standard Podcast. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Well, the big question is, what is a litigation nurse? Yeah, so um, I am a registered nurse with the NMC, but my role as a litigation nurse is clinical support, uh, advice and uh, expertise um, on clinical matters to solicitors that run clinical negligence claims. Um, So whilst obviously my colleagues are, are very highly trained and have a wealth of experience within legal matters um they don't have any clinical training um so my experience of being a clinical professional and my knowledge of anatomy physiology diseases symptoms um i am able to help them to kind of demystify and point them in the right direction um on where to progress with a clinical negligence claim so I think it's worth saying, because um, we were talking about this beforehand, we're not obviously going to discuss cases and we'll maintain confidentiality so everybody doesn't need to be mm-hmm. concerned about that. We'll talk broadly. Um, but I wondered what patients or service users are coming to your your business, your your solicitors to you for. What are some of the, the issues that are coming up? So it's, it's a very wide range, um, everything from dental cases, um, plastic surgery cases, all the way through to spinal injuries, amputations, um, cerebral palsy, birthing injuries, the whole whole wide range of healthcare really um, comes through our door. And we, we do tend to get more in particular fields than others. It is very much dependent on um, the experience that we have uh, and what we're good at helping with. So um, we are very good with spinal injury cases, uh, maternity cases. So we have a lot of experience um, advising solicitors on how to run those cases and they've run quite a lot successfully. Um, But we do see the vast majority of cases are against the NHS um, or NHS trusts. But that doesn't mean we don't also have cases against private clinics, uh, GPs, uh, dentists. So are they coming to you because they are complaining that something has gone wrong or can it also and or that they're not happy with the service they've received? Uh, That's quite a good point, actually, because we do uh, see quite a lot of what I would call service complaints coming through, um, which is, you know, such a body was rude to me or I didn't like such body's bedside manner, which doesn't fall within the remit of clinical negligence. Um, It it is a complaints process. And in that vein, we would advise to follow the complaints process, you know, using PALS, for example, or uh, the ombudsman to make those kind of complaints. Um, for the clinical negligence claim, as we've spoke about before, you've got the two uh, tier test um, 
of breach of duty and causation um, and breach of duty being uh, meeting the Bowen test, uh, which we most people might know about being the um, essentially a peer review test of what would a professional of the same experience working at the same time within that same field have done. Um, and it's not a test of best practice or good practice, but it's the lowest acceptable standard of practice. Um, and that is cur delivery rather than a, a complaint, you know, my food was cold or um, I didn't get my medication bang on the time when I was supposed to get it. They were 10 minutes late. You know, those kind of things don't really um, make a clinical negligence claim. So. Are there situations you're seeing where it's some of the things that you're seeing aren't clinical negligence? And I just wondered whether some of these things could have been sorted out before they got to you, whether you've got some sort of tips that as nurses, we could have addressed issues a little bit better. I appreciate this is in your opinion where um, people needn't have come to you if things had been just a little more sensitive, a little more well played out in practice. Yes, certainly. I, I think a lot of the time it is a miscommunication um, or a misunderstanding of what's being told. We obviously, as nurses, have um, a, a, almost a dual language. We know our medical terminology, our complex terminology, um, and, and we translate that into layman terms when we are speaking with our patients or service users because they don't have the same training or background or experience that we do. And sometimes that that the information gets lost in translation. So the patient then leaves understanding one thing and you think, oh, I've explained in a very clear and concise way, um, but that misunderstanding can then escalate into the point where a complaint gets made because what actually the patient understands versus what is written in the medical records are two completely different things. Uh, and I see that daily, that I get told one story by uh, clients that come to our firm versus the medical records that I'm reviewing for that person and it's telling two completely different stories. That's an interesting point, isn't it? Um, so I suppose the point there is about how we can de-escalate situations and, and meet what the person or the service user needs. I wonder also, inevitably, people will be thinking about record keeping because that one always seems to pop up when um, we're thinking about um, looking back at cases. What are your thoughts on record keeping? Do you see any consistent problems that perhaps in practice could be addressed? Uh, I, I do. And, and it's it's kind of informed my record keeping as well when I do clinical shifts. Um, embellishments in your writing are not necessary. Um, and I think we rely too heavily on tick boxes uh, for risk ass assessments. Um, I think the best documentation that I do see is uh, clear and concise documentation. So, for example, if uh, you are documenting a patient's pain, um, you can put your pain score down, you know, out of five out of ten, whatever pain scale you use. Um, but what does that actually mean? 
you know if it's you know they've got a swollen hand for example well is the hand red is it hot which would indicate an infection is the pain aching stabbing is it pins and needles you know because those different types of pain will tell us or pins and needles is more likely to be nerve pain so being clear and concise that they've got a pain score of eight pins and needles gives you a little bit more information than just ticking a box to say yes they've got pain or no they've not got pain on the opposite end of that if you're writing you know patients vomited plus 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 what does that mean you don't need to add the plus 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 you're going to be documenting the fluid loss in your fluid balance 100 mils 200 mils so you're embellishing for no reason um so i think there's a there's a fine line between the two just keeping documentation clear and concise and also i think having a bit of an idea of a trend of what's been going on because we do tend to have if especially working shifts we tend to have one-off documentation where a person uh, a nurse will be looking after a particular patient and then they might be off shift for a couple of days and then they come back and that that one-off view doesn't give you a, an idea of how they've improved or deteriorated over that time so i would recommend building that into your documentation you know the gcs is 14 okay but does that mean they are more or less confused than they were yesterday even if they had the same gcs score so it's just adding that extra little bit of information that gives you an idea of the trends that you're seeing from that person's condition it's actually quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because you could almost use this as part of your revalidation and, you know, as a reflective exercise, look at your record keeping and um, have a think about, you know, because I certainly didn't particularly do it. I would develop it and improve it over the years, but wouldn't have a hard and fast rule to go back and look back at my notes and see how things had improved. So, but it's such a critical thing, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. it, you know, it's, it could be an important um reflective um, exercise and perhaps to get someone else to look at them as well Um, yeah of course it's all in the interpretation as well what I may write is my um, my opinion my view and I if I put vomiting plus 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 that to somebody else could mean oh they've vomited loads but to me that might only mean 50 mils you know it's quite subjective isn't it so I, I would just the main point for me is being clear and concise is there a difference between um, record keeping more as notes and observation charts? Because I presume you look at both. Yeah, I very much, uh, when I look at my medical records that, that for, for cases, I have bundles of risk assessments and things like um, CAFTACA and VIP scores, news charts, prescriptions, and then a bundle on you know, handwritten notes or, or typed notes, as we're seeing a lot more um, frequently now as, as we're transitioning to paperless. Um, there is there is a distinct difference. Um, your risk assessments, they are, I think a lot of people view them as, as tick box exercises, and that's not to play down their importance they are extremely important um they should be done they have to be done not doing them is a breach of duty in of itself um but just completing it 
it doesn't then again i'm not wanting to scare any any nurses out there but um if you've completed it even ticking that box doesn't mean you're out of the woods you know you have to ensure that you've done it correctly and that the um the news let's say you've you've scored a news of six you know well are you escalating that appropriately you know just because you've done it has the correct um pathway being followed for your your local trust or your policy in that particular area um and we see that quite a lot as well that they've ticked the box you know they've done the falls risk assessment um and they said that they need the patient needs to be monitored one to one and then two days later the patient falls and and bangs the head and then they end up with a bleed on the brain and it's like well They've completed the falls risk assessment. It's there. I can see it in the notes, but they didn't implement any of the recommendations. So that there's, there's been a mistake or, or an accident happen, um, which could have been avoided. Yeah. Is there anything else? We talked particularly about communication and record keeping because I think they are at the front of people's minds. Is there anything that perhaps we as nurses are not aware of uh, in what we're perhaps could do better that you're seeing in practice because communication and, and record keeping jumps to mind immediately and I'm kind of leading you on that but I wondered from your own perspective whether there's other things that you think you know if only this had been done if if you, you know this is this is a problem we see in practice that could be corrected yeah, a, a really common one um, that I've come across, which was a big learning point for me, um, is uh, just an example, an extravasation injury. And I think the thing that I've seen the most is the wide range that people react to an extravasation injury. Um, but m- mistakes happen, accidents happen. OK, if um there's a, a nurse out there that says they've never made a mistake while well, they're wrong. If you think you haven't, you have, um, because I've come across it time and time again. And I think not recognising our own mistakes and our own accidents can be more dangerous than actually if we are more critical of ourselves. So in the example of an extravasation injury, if it happens, it happens. You know, we can mitigate the risk that it's going to happen. Um, but if that vein blows, if that cannula dislodges, you know, the, the, the drug is going to seep into the surrounding tissue. And it's following that correct process. Now, some people will think, well, I'll do an instant report. I'll remove the cannula. You know, I've done the right thing there. But we have guidance that says, well, you shouldn't take the cannula out. You know, you should try and aspirate from the cannula. You should apply cold compress dependent on the medication. And I can see so many times that people are doing what they think is the right thing because that's what they've been taught um, or that's their experience. But actually, because we have moved on and we're constantly improving our service, we're constantly learning more things through research um that our practice is constantly evolving and i think on top of record keeping and communication i think sticking to up-to-date practice is probably another thing which could avoid some of the stuff that i see we've talked a lot about the nurse and our individual responsibility but just as you were answering there you were talking about being more critical and so forth i suppose this also expands out into the organisational culture 
the support of the system that the nurse works in. Is there any comment on that? Are, are you finding some nurses are working in a very difficult environment? I'm not just thinking about um, our workload, stress and tiredness, etc. But um, does the supportive environment, the learning environment, it clearly it does have an impact on on what you're looking at, the wider the wider system? I would definitely say so. Um, definitely. I think in in areas where there has been completely open and honest practice, um, the documentation that I see is extremely clear. Um, the care that's been provided or the risk mitigation that's been provided, the follow up, all of that kind of stuff is very open, very honest. When the patients come to me, I get a very clear story. And those cases are usually either settled quite quickly for a lower amount than would normally be settled because they've mitigated the risk at the time, or those cases don't progress through the two-stage test because they've done the right thing. An error's happened, a mistake or an accident's occurred, but the outcome has been the same because they've done what they were supposed to have done in that scenario um so definitely a supportive environment where you can learn that stuff and speak to your colleagues and and make sure that you're providing the correct practice definitely impacts the then outcome for the patient because ultimately that's what clinical negligence is all about um it's ensuring that any damage that has happened to that patient through the error or mistake of uh, of a medical professional doesn't impact long term that patient or if it does impact them long term they are compensated so that they can pay for care that will allow them to continue living a normal life or a life as close to the one that they used to lead um so if a mistake had been made that led to an amputation uh, and a, a patient needs an adapted car for example so they can still drive or let's say they were working as a delivery driver and they they still needed to work somehow um they would need to change in career so all of that is taken into account in a in a holistic view of what what price value is going to allow that person to live as though what happened to them didn't happen. And just finally, Matt, thinking about your own development, um, it's quite a different job um, that you've moved into. I mean, so many people listening will have done all sorts of different things as nursing offers such a diverse um, range of, of jobs and aspects to look at. How did you prepare, prepare for this? Was it a big change for you uh, becoming a litigation nurse? Um, so I always had my hand in with um, drafting policy and uh, processes and guidance and ensuring that where I previously worked, we were being kept up to date and that we were following the, the right processes and, and auditing those. So I or, already had a little bit of a, a background in that. And then when I transitioned into this role, the steepest learning curve for me was the legal terminology and the way that a legal case runs to have an understanding of that. So um, I, I knew Bowen beforehand, but then there's other case law such as Montgomery, which is all about um, consent and informed decision making. There's um, case law um, 
Boritho on uh, logical scrutiny of um, clinical opinion. So I, I had to learn that stuff to understand the wider um, team objective of what we were trying to achieve in clinical negligence. And, and once I had that knowledge and understanding, I was able to use my nursing communication translation skills to bring a medical records terminology into terms that the solicitors would understand that they can then say, okay, well, that's an injury that has resulted from this. So that's going to be added on X, Y, and Z. Well, that's brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Matt, because that's been enlightening for me and I'm sure for everybody. It's a role I haven't actually heard of, so I've learned something um, today. And thank you. Thank you for joining us, Matt. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And all resources connected to this episode of the show can be found at rcni.com forward slash podcast. Thank you, Matt. And thank you all for listening. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.